0: So I, I hope if you've hung around here at Ballon Vineyard for any length of time, you would have noticed that one of our core values as a church is generosity. And uh, we almost want to see how far as a church community we can push this. How, how can we be known in this area as a really generous church community? That's one of our core values. And I think the perception of, of people who rarely go to church uh, can be that the church is after their money. Does anyone kind of feel that tension sometimes? Uh, I heard a story recently about a guy called John having a drink in the bar. And uh, he overheard a conversation where a woman was telling her father uh, that she'd been recently invited to go to a local church. And uh, the father said... Oh, no, sorry. So She said, she said to dad, they, they said they'd like to bless me. And the father said bless you, my beep, they're after your money, that's all. And in hearing this conversation, John was just like, oh my goodness, that's terrible. And he was desperate to change people's perception of church. So he dashed across the road to the cash machine, got out a load of money, and uh, he returned to their table. And he just said, I'm really sorry, really sorry to be so nosy, uh, but I couldn't help overhearing your conversation earlier about the church um, I just want you to know, I'm part of a church and we definitely after your, aren't after your money. <laughs> Freudian slip. We definitely aren't after your money and, um, and neither is God. I believe he does want to bless you and if it's okay, I'd like to pay for your lunch. And they, they just responded really gratefully by pulling up a chair and just invited him to come sit with them and tell them a bit more about the church. But what motivated John to do what he did? I, I just think it's this belief that God is extravagantly generous. God is just extravagantly generous. And the most generous being in all the world, all the universe, he calls us, his church, to reflect that in how we live and how we give. But it's, it's such a challenging thing to do, isn't it? Because we live in a culture that just pulls us in so many different directions. The pressure to spend is all around us. And money says, if you want to have a good life, focus your life on me. Or if you... There's nothing that money can't buy. And if you earn enough or hoard enough, then you'll get financial security. If if money could buy you happiness, then the richest people in the world would be the happiest. But I don't really see that. There was a quote that Jim Carrey said once, um, where he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous... And do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. It's a good quote, isn't it? So, the root of the word miserable is miser, and it's a person who keeps their wealth for themselves. And I don't know if anybody watched A Christmas Carol Over Christmas with um, Ebenezer Scrooge, who was a miserable miser. Who, he, he came to the realisation, didn't he, that money wasn't bringing him any real happiness. And then you see him being transformed and finding joy as he begins to give it away to others. And yet we just still find it hard to accept that money doesn't bring us happiness. We still pursue it, don't we? We kind of know that's true, but we still pursue it. So Matthew 6, I don't know, we should have a little slide. Matthew 6, it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also, will be also. Um, about six years ago, we went through a situation that probably changed my attitude towards money forever. Um, some of you might know this story. There's probably quite a few that don't, actually. And I'm going to paraphrase and dramatically reduce all the toings and froings of what happened. But in essence, um, Steve had done various different jobs. And sometimes he'd been employed, sometimes he'd been self employed. And the HMRC. God bless them, God bless them. Uh, They'd got a bit confused with his tax returns. And so we'd send off the correct tax returns and then we'd think that it was all sorted. And then a few months later, they'd send us a reminder that we hadn't completed our tax returns. And then we'd resend them. And then a few months later, we'd get another reminder that that the amount had then gone up again. Um, the amount that we owed and so we'd ring up again, we'd speak to a different person and they would say that it was all okay, uh, we didn't actually owe any money but then a few months later we would get another letter saying that we owed even more money and this, su- this sort of cycle carried on for probably about six years until it all culminated <laughs> on a cold November day just over six years ago there was a knock at the door and Steve was served with a bankruptcy notice. So they froze all our assets and they were going to take everything away. Um, and we had a decision to make there and then whether we were going to go into anxiety and panic because, let's face it, money induces that in us. It really does, doesn't it? There's nothing more that kind of grips you than sort of not having enough. Or were we going to trust God? It was a real, like, what are we going to do here? And I can honestly say that those few months where we had to fight our cause, we had to um, represent ourselves in court because we couldn't afford a lawyer. We had to make decisions about our future, which our finances didn't permit. Um, They were some of the most joyful times we've had. It was so bizarre. We'd get another letter from the HMRC informing us that the debt had increased. And we'd somehow laugh over it and declare the promises of God over the situation. It was just incredible. And it was just such a real time of declaring God's provision and his promises over us and standing on the truth of his provision, even if it meant we lost everything. There was, but there was just something so freeing, knowing that it was totally up to God. And choosing every day to trust him rather than what our bank balance was saying. And in fact, we didn't even have a bank balance because they'd frozen our bank account. But we, I, yeah, I can honestly say just it was something dramatically shifted in us at this point, realising that it all belonged to God anyway. It's all, all, our, all our stuff belongs to God. It's actually not ours. But there's something really freeing in that. We often think that our money or our possessions or our houses, they're somehow our own but they're not. They all belong to God. Now, the, the outcome of that, for those of you who want to know the end of the story, was that we went to court to get it overturned, and it was successful, which is just incredible. It was against all the odds. We, you know, we stood up in court on our own without, without anybody else um, representing us, and the bankruptcy was overturned. We still had to pay quite a large sum of money that we didn't actually owe, but we just learned some in, some lifelong lessons during those months which just completely transformed our attitude i think towards money so i think one of the biggest lessons to grasp with relation to money is a principle that um there's an author called Randy Alcorn only an american um says in his book the treasure principle <laughs> 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 and uh it's a really it's an incredible book if you want to be really challenged um but it just says uh, God owns everything. I'm just his money manager. Like if we really understood that, God owns everything. I'm just his money manager. And we realize that our house belongs to God, not us. So why would we actually worry if we keep it or not? It belongs to him anyway. He has no shortage of resources. He could easily provide us with another place to live. But if if God is the owner, then I'm the manager. And I need to adopt, I suppose it's like a steward's mentality to what he's entrusted us. So a steward manages assets for his owner's benefits. The steward um, carries no sense of entitlement towards those assets that he manages. It's literally, it's literally my job as the owner to find out what the owner wants, sorry, my job as a steward to find out what the owner wants to do his, with, with his assets and then carry out his will. And I think this principle of realizing that everything is God's, it will dramatically reduce your anxiety when it comes to money. Dramatically reduce it. Free us from the money trap. And for the next two or three years after that, I don't actually know how we managed to stay in the house we, we live in. It, it, I mean, it's seriously a miracle. We, we had more, far more outgoings than we had incomings. Is that the right? Tell them I'm not a banker, can't you? Um... And yet somehow it worked. And we, we just knew that God had called us to Balaam. And we knew he hadn't finished with us being here. And so we had to say to God, look, we can't afford to stay here. So, it would, you know, it would make so much more sense for us to move out of London. But if you want to stay here, you want us to stay here, then God, it's over to you. You've got to provide. And we'd have, we'd have family members that were almost cross with us saying, how are you doing this? Like, how is this working? And yet, whenever we were struggling and really on the edge of not having enough, we'd, we'd stripped all the extras out. There was no going out for coffee or meals or anything like that. Honestly, how much money do we spend on coffee? Seriously, it's just FYI. I, I'm guilty of it now. Um, we you know we bought all our food from lidl like honestly save half your money go to lidl <laughs> it's true um, but <laughs> but so we we had stripped everything out but every time we were on the edge of not having enough we would increase our giving it was just the weirdest thing we and every time we increased our giving we would have enough it was, it was unbelievable. We'd increase our tithe or we'd give extra money away and month after month we would have enough. And it got to the point almost where it was illegal for us to worry about money. It's just illegal for us to worry about money. We have seen God provide and provide and provide time after time that we cannot have any, any anxiety about whether he's going to provide because we've seen it. All our stuff's his anyway. Um, these verses from Malachi 3, they became very real to us. It's quite hard hitting, but I love, I love the end verse. Um, so it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under cu- a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see w- if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. So good, isn't it? So God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Don't hold back any of it. The, the obedient Israelite didn't ask whether or not he, he could give only 7% instead of 10 that month because he couldn't quite afford it. He knew the answer. And um, and then it says, where does the tithe go? And it says, into the storehouse. So that this was something in Israel that you didn't decide for yourself. The whole tithe went into the temple for the work of the Levites. And I guess the closest parallel to the temple these days is the church. And the closest parallel to the Levites is the elders of the church. And you see that in Acts 2 in Jerusalem where it says, the money was laid at the feet of the apostles who then decided how to distribute it. But in this next verse, God says something really striking, doesn't he? He says, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing. And I, I, don't, I don't think, correct me any theologians amongst you, but I don't think there's anywhere else in the whole of scripture where God says test me. He doesn't say test me. Am I right? I'm right, Pete. Good. Just checking. Um, he says, test me in this. Like God is asking us to test him. It's it's just extraordinary. It's all, it's almost like God is longing for us to give him a chance. Like, come on then, see if you can outgive me. Let me let, just just test me. And there's this um famous Christian businessman and an inventor, and apparently he used to live on ten percent of his income and give ninety percent away. It was a guy called R. G. Latourno. if anybody's ever heard of him. And he said, I just keep shoveling out and God just keeps shoveling back. But God's got a bigger shovel. (laughs) How good is that? God's economy, it doesn't work like the earth's economy. It just doesn't work. I've seen it firsthand. That when you have this attitude shift of everything belonging to God anyway and then joyfully giving it away, he just gives far more back again. And I I love giving. I love being generous. We get to do this. So for the follower of Jesus, is generosity optional or mandatory? So generosity is optional in the sense that God gives us the freedom to choose, to do as we wish. But it's mandatory in that Jesus commands it and expects it. But I think it's where we go is we have a paradigm shift. And just to think of it as pure privilege with incredible w- rewards, both now and for eternity. It's less um, I've got to, it's more I get to. And the benefits so far outweigh the cost that it's a no brainer. Jesus says it's more blessed, and that word blessed is Makarios, which means happy making. It's more blessed, happy making, to give than to receive. So we're going to be far happier. Well, it's like a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. Why wouldn't we do that? Money is the second most frequent topic that Jesus talks about. Anyone know what the first one was? Apart from Steve. The kingdom of God, apparently, which we're going to do a short series on in the coming months. The second most frequent topic that Jesus talks about is money. I think eleven out of the thirty-nine parables are about finance. It's interesting, isn't it? I, and I think one of the reasons why is because scriptures make it clear that there's a fundamental connection between a person's spiritual life and his attitudes and actions concerning money and possessions. Often we divorce the two, and I don't think Je- I think Jesus essentially sees them as related to one another. You look at um, in Luke, you look at Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus said, uh, sorry, he, he tells Jesus, I'm going to pay back four times and give half to the poor. And Jesus, like weirdly, he says, today salvation's come to this house. He's just said he's just going to pay back money. And Jesus has just said salvation's going to come to this house. And what is that? It's the, it's the fundamental change in his attitudes and actions concerning money and possessions. It didn't bring him salvation, but it demonstrated it. Well, Matthew 19, with the story of the rich young ruler, Jesus knows what's keeping him away from God is his attachment to his money and possessions. These are his God. And so he says, give it all up, come follow me, and you'll have riches in heaven. And the man says, no. And Jesus talks how hard it is that for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He knows that this man actually isn't changed. He's not saved because his heart hasn't changed. There's two passages in Acts 2 and Acts 4, which we're going to read. And it basically says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to every, anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then the next passage in Acts 4 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power... The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So, almost like the proof of change, the proof of the Holy Spirit's work, was that people were generous with sharing and giving of money and possessions. They liquidated their assets and they gave it to the good of others. And only a profound work of God could account for the radical change in their attitude. And then look at the church growth. The Lord added daily to their number those that were being saved. We would love to see this, wouldn't we? The Lord adding daily those that are being saved. And I just wonder whether there's a correlation between generosity and this. I just wonder whether there is. And you see that being demonstrated in the lives of people at this church. You just, you just see it. It's so moving to see people have just being um, gripped by the generosity of God and then causing them to overflow in generosity, whether it's collecting for bags of blessings or for the, um, the women's refuge. Incredible, incredible generosity. Or donating money so we can buy new laptops for the job club. Or just generally our generosity in tithing meaning we can start to impact our community. And I just, I just get so moved and excited to see God changing hearts. Just to overflow with generosity. Because, you know, and even when circumstances aren't ideal, you see the generosity of people in giving. It's just, it's so incredibly moving. And our aim is, isn't it, to be a church which changes the lives of thousands of people in our community. That rewrites the story of our city. I love this phrase that Causeway Coast Vineyard have, which is this. It says, we are building lives of breathtaking generosity to make the impossible sustainable. We're building lives of breathtaking generosity to make the impossible sustainable. And that's the goal, isn't it? To see this city, to see this nation, to see this world transformed by the power of the gospel. And generosity is a way that will make this possible. So I wanted to touch on the subject of tithing and give some basic principles regarding it. So tithing, for those that don't know what on earth that means, we've touched on it a bit today and you might be going, what is that? Um, So it's the principle that God set up in the the Old Testament where he required the first 10% of all that we've earned to go to the temple. So does the Old Testament model of tithing still apply to Christians today since it was part of the Old Covenant? So I have mixed feelings on tithing. I can't stand legalism. um, And I certainly don't want to impose superseded first covenant restrictions on Christians. However, the fact is that every New Testament example of giving goes beyond the tithe. The strongest arguments made against tithing, oh, it's it's just all law. Sorry, it's all grace and not law. But does being under grace mean that we should stop doing all that was under the law. And I'm a strong believer in the new covenant superiority over the old, but on the other hand, I believe there's an ongoing value to certain aspects of the old covenant. And we're never told that tithing has been superseded. Jesus directly affirmed it, and the early church fathers affirmed it as well. They taught it as a requirement of Christian living. So I I, I think almost the... The question of tithing is the whole—is it the whole principle of Christian giving, or it's it's not the centre of it? But I think many people associate this, the the whole thing of tithing with similar things to the Sabbath. Um, so, New Testament Christians Christians they're not obligated to keep the Sabbath with all its legislated rules, but a weekly day of rest based on God's pattern of creation was instituted before the law, and it's a principle that's never revoked. And Jesus, he, he fulfilled the entire Old Testament, didn't he? But he didn't re- render it irrelevant. So Old Testament legislation, it demonstrated how to love my neighbor, didn't it? But specific regulations didn't apply, but the principles do. And the disciples gave because much grace was upon them all, that phrase in Acts 4 And it was obvious being under grace didn't mean that the New Testament Christians would give less than their Old Testament ancestors, but it probably actually meant that they'd give more. So being under grace doesn't mean by living by lower standards. Jesus never lowered the bar. So he talked about murder, didn't he? It It was do not murder in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it was even if you look at somebody, you've committed murder. Like he never lowered it, he raised it. But he also gives us grace to empower us to jump higher than the law. He gives us grace in that. So I really believe we need to be faithful in our giving. We need to maintain it in difficult times, increasing it if we haven't been doing it in the past. And I'd almost go so far to say, it probably offend a few people, but often our lack of giving has been a large part of our financial problems. And it's certainly it's never a solution to it. If we're in financial difficulty, we need to give first to God, cut back, up back our expenditure, systematically pay off our debts to others, but we have to do the first bit. God requires us to give our first fruits to God. And God opens the heavens to those with open hands. So, And, and the reality is this, this can be abused. We've all seen this being abused, haven't we? We've we've all seen the private jets and the shiny limos and the shiny suits. But if Jesus said it, it's worth paying attention to. And we don't let other people that abuse it condition condition whether or not we respond to it. We determine in our hearts whether we're going to lean into this or not. And here's why. Because when we're generous, we align our hearts with a vision of heaven. Generosity is a sign that we're carrying the life of God. It's an it's it's the indicator. If you want to know whether God is changing your life, look at your generosity level. It's one of the best indicators. It's not necessarily how much Bible you know, although that's really helpful. You know, in fact, in some ways, if you know a lot of Bible and you're not doing much of it, that's not very good at all. But if it's far better to go, is God getting hold of my heart, and is this leaking? Is it spreading his goodness? And I think whether you know Jesus or not, you would expect his people to be generous. You would expect followers of Jesus to be, to be generous because everything that God make, makes, gives. The sun gives, the trees give, the rivers give. Everything that God makes, gives, made, gives. But only humanity gets the choice on whether it gives. We're the only ones out of all creation who are given the choice whether we give. And that's because it's just such a deep privilege, and he reserves he reserves it for the crown of his creation, people. And he says, These guys get to choose whether they become like me, but creation has to has to give, it has to yield its fruit all the time. But humanity gets the choice whether we become like him. What a joy of God to give us the joy of giving. God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only son. So just, I want to come down to land. But I hope you hear my heart in this. Like giving isn't a luxury. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. We get to do this. We get the opportunity to become like him. And generosity is the evidence of the nature of God in our lives. It's the evidence that we're getting it. It's the evidence that understanding what this life and this kingdom is really about. And it's also the evidence that he's getting us. The very nature of who God is means that we should be known for our generosity. So generosity starts by giving a tithe, giving a tenth of all that you earn. That's almost like the training wheels for generosity. That's like the first level. So, and if you, haven't done all, if you haven't done that already, I'd really encourage you to do it. Go ahead and get started on that adventure. Go ahead and find out the abundance of your father's heart towards you as you release what you have in your hands towards him. It's, it's, it's a privilege to do it, honestly. And I say this to line up this. Only when I go above the tithe do I break into kingdom generosity. Tithe is just expected. Above that is kingdom generosity. It's just above and beyond And when I break into kingdom generosity, the kingdom breaks in on me. And I know we can get a bit weird about money, can't we? We get a bit weird about it and nervous about talking about it. But if we don't talk about it, we're depriving people of this adventure with God. This is such a good adventure to go on with God. And we've just found incredible provision and incredible relationship with God through giving. And I'm just really excited that we get to do this as a church community. What would it look like for Ballon Vineyard to be the most generous church that's ever existed? Like, what would that look like? We could change this, we can start to change this city by, by, by giving God everything. It all belongs to Him anyway. I didn't know quite how to land this talk, so I just decided to pray. <laughs> I just, handbrake, suddenly skid skid to a halt. Um, So as the worship band come up, why don't we stand and why don't we pray?